It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, I spent much of the holiday weekend, well, in addition to doing Media Buzz and appearing on Special Report and eating too much turkey, watching the new Get Back documentary on the Beatles. I will have more to say about that. I won't go on as long as the documentary itself. It's three parts and many hours. Uh, But even if you're not that interested in rock music, there's a lot of fascinating elements to this, which I will get into very shortly. Uh, If you missed yesterday's show, I had fascinating interviews with Jonathan Call, with Brian Kilmead. I covered a lot of stuff. Uh, also, you, over the weekend, you might have missed, if you were, you know, not checking your uh, phone every 10 minutes, this very important story about Madonna. Madonna criticizing Instagram because the company removed photos from her Instagram page. She says that's because part of her nipple was showing. This, of course, is a tremendous cultural crisis. So on her account... Uh, she said she wanted to. She decided to repost these ten photos, which show her in a variety of poses and fishnet stockings in a bedroom. Okay, so it sounds a little bit uh, risque, shall we say? And in the slideshow, a heart emoji—you know, you can kind of tack those on over the picture—covers her nipple in three of the images. And she says the following: "It is still astounding to me that we live in a culture that allows every inch of a woman's body to be shown, except a nipple." She's got 17 million followers, by the way. Giving thanks that I have managed to maintain my sanity through four decades of censorship, sexism, ageism, and misogyny. That's a lot of isms. Um, Spokesperson for Meta, of course, the Facebook parent company, saying, well, our rules apply to everyone on Instagram, and we removed Madonna's post uh, for breaking our rules against adult nudity. While we understand not everyone will agree with where we draw the line, our rules are designed to keep people of all ages safe on our apps. Okay, you know, there are pictures posted on Instagram that are very sexual. Uh, There are exceptions that Facebook and Instagram make uh, for pictures of breastfeeding, for example. But this really sounds like an absurd overreaction. And good for Madonna for speaking out. Um, I haven't seen the photos in question, but that's okay. It's my job to report the news to you. Now, when we started this holiday weekend, uh, what I'm about to talk about, and what I added to um, the program yesterday at the last minute, I'm not going to say it didn't exist. Most Americans, most people around the globe, didn't even know about it. Didn't know about Omicron. Omicron? Omicron. Uh, this virus variant. And the thing that I talk with Mike Emanuel about, and it, 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 this is, reminds me of the early, early days of the pandemic when there'd be news stories saying, oh, you know, five cases were discovered uh, in Europe and two cases in California. And people were starting to pay attention that there was this thing called coronavirus. None of, none of us, of course, having any idea just how devastating this global pandemic would become, killing more than three quarters of a million of Americans and, of course, many more millions around the world. So now comes this variant, a virus variant that uh, has popped up in eight African countries. And what we don't know, well, we don't know a hell of a lot. This is the thing. We know there's a variant. We know it seems to spread pretty quickly. 
We know that on Friday, uh, when he briefly spoke to reporters, you know, another president might have made a speech about how I've banned travel from the eight African countries in which this virus variant has surfaced. And Biden just, you know, he went to lunch uh, on the island, came out and answered a few questions, says we don't know what we don't know, which is true, and mentioned the travel ban. Uh, so the challenge for the media here is you've got to report all these things that were going on. I was looking at the headlines over the weekend. Um, let's see, New York Times had a big headline saying, um, you know, world is on alert. And the Washington Post had a big headline saying, experts say travel ban may come too late because it's not just the U.S. Uh, Britain and Israel and the Netherlands and other countries are closing their borders either completely in the case of Israel or just to these countries where this virus variant has surfaced. And here's the thing. This could turn out to be another deadly, devastating, and for the moment immune or at least resistant to the vaccines that we have version of the coronavirus. Or it could turn out to be not much. Uh, there's one South African doctor who's been quoted pretty widely as saying that the symptoms are mild. Now, is it too early to say that? Yeah, definitively, of course it is. Um, or it could turn out to be like the Delta variant. Remember when we were in June and July and it seemed like the pandemic was petering out, we had the vaccines, and then suddenly in August, you know, the number of daily average cases triples in the U.S. and the death rate starts to go up. And only recently has the, have those numbers started to come down. So the Delta surge turned out to be really, really difficult. And we have various jurisdictions um, bringing back mass mandates, taking off mass mandates. It's so confusing to people. And that's part of the mixed messaging here, not just from the Biden administration, but from governors and mayors and county executives and so forth. But the challenge for the press, it seems to me, is, is similar to what we faced at the beginning of the pandemic, which is, we just don't know which way this is going to go. It could be that we look back as soon as a week, two weeks, three weeks from now and saying, wow, this is an awful uh, strain of this thing. And the drug companies, the big pharmaceutical companies are trying to come up with new vaccine variants just at a time when the Biden administration has gotten permission or at least encouragement from the FDA and the CDC to get, encourage people to get boosters, a third shot, if their previous one in the case of Pfizer and Moderna uh, was more than six months ago. So could this lead? And, you know, Anthony Fauci was on uh, ABC this week, yesterday, and he was asked the obvious question, you know, are we looking at more lockdowns? And he said it's too soon to tell. Nevertheless, the media are gearing up. Well, let's debate this. Should we lock down the country again? Should we bring back more mask mandates? And, you know, we're not locking down the country again. We've been through too many cycles of this, and nobody in a position of power is seriously proposing it. Could that change, depending on how um, deadly this is and where the hotspots are? Would it be uh, spread? You know, usually if it spreads in some parts of the country, then it ends up spreading in all parts of the country. I'm remembering now when you, if you were in Florida, uh, you weren't allowed to go to New York or New Jersey. I mean, there were states putting up travel bans, as well as President Trump's original uh, travel ban from China, later extended uh, to some other countries as well. So it seems to me the media have a real tightrope act here, which is to report, for example, that on Friday the Dow dropped 900 points uh, as the markets reacted to the least the possibility, the potential 
of another really serious virus variant. You got to report the Biden travel ban. You got to report what politicians are saying. You got to report the latest from around the world. But at the same time, you can't go overboard. And there was a period of time in 2020 when I felt that the media were contributing to fear mongering. Now, Everybody's got the caveat. So in that New York Times story I mentioned with the uh, world on alert um, headline, in the fifth paragraph, it says, scientists caution that relatively little is known about the new variant and that only a small number of confirmed cases have surfaced globally. But here's what happens. I remember talking about this um, throughout 2020 and even parts of 2021. Everybody's got to cover it, right? So you turn on the TV. And hour after hour after hour, especially, you know, Thanksgiving weekend, not a hell of a lot else going on, it's the lead story. Scientists worried. Experts are interviewed. Pundits pontificate. Uh, especially, you know, oh, here's a new, you know, five new cases found in this country, that sort of thing. And then you pick up the newspapers. The newspapers are leading with it. The reactions, the economic impact, the potential impact. Uh, what does Fauci say? What did the CDC say? And so you could have all the caveats in the world. We don't know. We're not sure. Uh, there's a lot to find out. And yet it's the sheer volume of stories, not necessarily the alarmist tone, which in the most cases you don't have, but the sheer volume of stories that makes people think, wow, um, this is pretty scary stuff. And that's what happens in these situations. Uh, look, it's also a reminder that about 40% of Americans are not fully vaccinated. So if fear being a great motivator, and we saw this at the beginning of the Delta surge, convinces more people to go out and get their first shot or their second shot, that would be a good thing. And yet it's also a problem in Canada, which is far more vaccinated. Uh, I think about 70% of Canadians uh, are vaccinated, it may even be as high as 75. And so I can't explain that. I mean, I do know this, and I know this for scientific certainty. If you get fully vaccinated and you and nevertheless get the coronavirus, uh, there is an overwhelming odds that you will not have to go to the hospital, that you will not die, that your symptoms will be mild. That might be the best that we can ask for. Uh, anyway, to be continued, keeping an eye on that. A um, lot of stories uh, in the last few days about President Biden and why isn't he doing better and everybody's got their own take. Uh, I led the show yesterday with Biden avoiding the press. In fact, you know, just I showed clips of him, you know, answering questions with, you know, a couple of sentences and then thanks very much or walking off. How, how many times have we seen the president make some remarks, walk off and then um, not answer questions? The reporters are shouting, sir, when are you going to take our questions? So the AP, so there's a lot of pieces now and some of this reflects complaints within the Democratic Party. Biden needs to talk more about X. Biden needs to talk more about inflation. Well, you can't do that. I mean, you can do that in set speeches, but Biden's speeches don't tend to make a lot of news because they're very carefully scripted, shall we say. Um, so here's the AP. Inflation is soaring. Businesses are struggling to hire. And President Biden's poll numbers have been in freefall. The White House sees a common culprit for it all, COVID-19. And I think there's something to that. If there's one reason, other than him not being Donald Trump, that Joe Biden was elected president of the United States, it was that he was going to beat the virus. And back in May and June, as the, as the vaccines rolled out and everybody who wanted one got one, it looked like we were well on our way to that goal. Since then, obviously, more people have died. More people died in 2021 than died in 2020. 
Also, um, you just have the impact on the economy, the economic uncertainty. I mean, it's, it's such a mixed picture. Unemployment is at record lows. The number of jobless claims, this number just came out uh, Thursday or Friday, uh, at a 52-year low. Stock market, despite that drumming on Friday, um, way up from where it was a year ago. And yet, there's a lot of economic uncertainty. So, uh, finally controlling COVID-19, says the AP, the White House believes is the skeleton key to rejuvenating the country and reviving Biden's own standing. In other words, it would be good for America, good for the world, and good for Joe Biden if we could beat this thing back. But the coronavirus challenge has proved to be vexing for the White House, with last summer's premature claims of victory swamped by the more transmissible Delta variant. Remember Independence Day, independence from the virus and all that? Yeah, that did not work out so well. So the administration's view, according to this wire service piece, is that it's all the fault of an intransigent majority that is resisting vaccination. And that's clearly a factor. If more people got fully vaccinated, uh, we would drive this thing down. But then, you know, along came Delta, along comes Omicron, and... It's just hard to annihilate these things. Jen Psaki saying the other day, we're still in the middle of fighting a pandemic and people are sick of tired of that. We are too. Okay, here's an analysis by Dan Bowles in the Washington Post. When President Biden came to office, he had three overriding priorities. Tame the coronavirus pandemic and deal with its effect on the economy. Number two, persuade Congress to enact sweeping domestic policy initiatives. Number three, unify the country as best he could. The first was a challenge, the second a gamble, and the third, given the resistance from the Republican Party, always a long shot. None of this has been fully accomplished, and all this, of course, could affect the midterms and could affect dramatically affect, says Dan Bowles, uh, Biden's presidency. So with new infections rising again, 100,000 per day, it's a little lower than that now, but, you know, they do fluctuate. Um, that's not good news for the administration. A few months ago, southern states were the hotspots. Today, it's the northern tier of the country being hardest hit. Um, vaccines continue to reduce the number of hospitalizations and deaths, but that's not such great co- uh, comfort. Biden's hope to vaccinate the overwhelming majority of the population has fallen short. And, you know, I mean, he couldn't get it done. Whether it's his fault or the Republicans' fault or people deciding that they have a personal right to choose. I mean, some people, including some famous athletes, have given up their jobs in order not to get the shots. Uh, Biden's team has not been able to overcome this resistance other than doggedly repeating the value of the vaccines. Everybody's sick of hearing it, but not making that much progress. And then you get down to the legislation. uh, And look, Biden got the infrastructure bill passed, but here we are heading into December. Who the hell knows, especially with this latest uh, bout with inflation and especially with this potential rise in COVID-19 cases, how much, if any, of the Build Back Better bill, whether, you know, now whittled down to under $2 trillion, originally $3.5 trillion, which was absurd in terms of the political reality, uh, whether that's going to pass. I keep seeing headlines. Joe Manchin doesn't want paid parental leave. Joe Manchin doesn't want the child tax credit. And Joe Manchin is the 50th Senate vote. So a, a, a different analysis, which I think raises some intriguing points in the New York Times, It starts out by saying, over the years, many Democrats have argued there's a simple secret to winning elections. Enact popular legislation. President Biden tried to make that theory a reality. He enacted the big COVID stimulus plan, bipartisan infrastructure bill, and he's made progress 
I don't know if I completely agree with that. I guess it's, since the House passed it, you have to say he's making some progress, pushing through this $2 trillion, you know, climate change, pre-kindergarten, child tax credit, expand Medicare uh, legislation. But so far, popular policies haven't made for a popular president. His approval ratings have slipped to the mid-40s, lower in some polls. Even though his legislation commands majority support in, in polls. So that seems like a conundrum. Why would Joe Biden not personally be popular if the legislation he's pushing is polling well? Well, part of this is, you know, part of this is, is the split that you get. You know, in other words, more Republicans might be likely to say, yeah, I'm for a child tax credit uh, or even for family leave or even for pre-kindergarten than to say, I like Joe Biden. Things are very partisan. But secondly, you know, when people say I approve or I don't approve the job the president's doing, a lot of it is image. Does he project an image of strength? Does he project an image of being in charge? What I have been saying for months, and I said this on the podcast last week, now the New York Times and other outlets coming along and saying, hey, Biden isn't really making much use of his media megaphone. Um, he's turned the volume down. He, so he might not be seen as fighting for the, the everyday kitchen table issues that people care about. Take the infrastructure bill, for example. Look, ultimately, the fact that, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars will be poured into local projects and create jobs for people who don't necessarily have college degrees, bridges, roads, tunnels, ports, transit, is great. But as of now, none of that's been built. None of that's been spent. What people do see is rising gas prices. What people do see is their purchasing power being eroded when they go to the supermarket. Uh, now, Biden says his $2 trillion bill is going to work on that, too. People might believe it. They might not believe it. But a lot of people, and the Times piece makes this point quite well, they just don't follow the details of politics and policy battles all that closely. So even when Biden passed, for example, the $1,400 stimulus checks, people got that. They're aware that they got it. A lot of them don't credit Joe Biden for it. Uh, part of this is a, a, a question of salesmanship. Part of this is just the way the political uh, system works. So what do voters ask for, ask the Times? Well, strong economy and jobs. It's boring. It's not ideological. It's not what progressives might say in response to the question. Things like reducing income inequality or addressing climate change. But the state of the economy is always the number one issue in the polls. It usually, you know, takes a back seat only in the case of something, uh, some kind of crisis, like a war, where Americans are getting killed in some foreign land, or a pandemic, which obviously pandemics of this scale don't happen um, every few years or even every few decades. So the Times, you know, which may have its own view on this, the, the writer says, uh, so far Biden hasn't given voters quite what they've asked for. Yes, economic growth has been robust and unemployment has fallen. Under most circumstances, these numbers would probably translate to the perception of a strong economy. Maybe they will in time, but these aren't quite normal circumstances. You know, it's just fascinating to me. You would think presidents who push unpopular policies, and you know, you can't separate this from what happened in Afghanistan. You can't separate this from what's happening at the border. You know, there's a lot of things that are visual television stories, whereas legislation is always... Uh, abstract. You know, reporters will go and they'll interview somebody on Medicare who's happy to get, you know, enhanced eye care or dental benefits. Um, but it's not visceral. It's not money in your paycheck. 
This even happens with tax cuts, which everyone loves tax cuts. They don't like paying for them. They don't like the government having to pay for it by doing certain things. But who doesn't like a tax cut? On the other hand, if your money is withheld from your paycheck every week, every two weeks, you may feel like you didn't really get it, and you may feel like other people got more. And I think that's also, given the, the sticker shock price tag on some of uh, this legislation, I think there's a lot polling shows a lot of people are like, well, I think this bill helped other people, it didn't help me. And maybe there's even like, it helped people who have lower incomes than I do, and that's coming out of my tax dollars, but it didn't help me. Now, in reality, it might be helping them, or it might help them in the future. Uh, and, you know, a lot of it is specific. If you have children, you want a child tax credit. If you have young children, you'd love to have free pre-kindergarten in areas that don't already offer it. Um, and yet, there just isn't quite the connection. And this is also a matter of political skill. Uh, I don't think uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have done the world's best job of selling what they've done and what they want to do. You know, Biden gives these daytime speeches they, they're very repetitive. Nobody's ever accused him of being a great orator. And you know what he does? I talked about this a little bit on Sunday. He doesn't pick fights. He wants everybody to get along. So he doesn't go out and, you know, I mean, one of the easiest things to do in politics is to say, you're angry? Fine. Be angry at that guy over there or that political party over there. He doesn't go out and pick a fight with Mitch McConnell because he wants to work with McConnell on certain things. He doesn't want to go out and pick a fight with Donald Trump uh, because he wants people not to focus on the former president. He doesn't pick fights on Twitter. I'm not saying picking fights is the answer. Performance is the answer. But part of politics is craft. Part of it is in this, you know, info-saturated 24-7 world, it's how you communicate. And too often by, you know, the guy goes to Delaware for the weekend, he's in Nantucket uh, this past weekend, and he, and he just, you know, he's hanging out with his family. That's fine. I don't take the position that president has to work every day. You're always on the job. I'm not going to get into this silliness, oh, he shouldn't have gone and stayed at a billionaire's house uh, on Nantucket. First of all, you're still working. It was, was evident with the decision he had to make Friday on the travel ban. Secondly, you know, uh, excuse me, didn't Donald Trump spend a whole lot of his presidency at either Mar-a-Lago or his New Jersey golf club? You know, he happened to be rich. Biden isn't rich. He's doing all right. He's got the Delaware Beach House, but he isn't rich. So I, I never begrudge. I never go down that road. Well, you shouldn't play golf because all these things are happening. Presidents need rest and relaxation too, uh, regardless of age, I would add. Uh, so all these are going to play out, I think, in this coming week. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. And now, as advertised, I'm going to talk about the Beatles. First of all, so this uh, documentary is called Get Back after the song. And 57 hours of unseen footage that was literally locked in a vault at Apple headquarters in London until it was dug out. And uh, Peter Jackson, the director, and I guess with help from George Martin's son, George Martin, the longtime Beatles producer, decided that they would try to make a real documentary about this. And here's the amazing thing. You actually get, I mean, the, the 50 years thing blows my mind because, you know, I remember when the Beatles went on the Ed Sullivan show, so I'm of that generation. But I see kids, uh, including my kids, who are into the Beatles. I see grandchildren, grandchildren of the original fans who are into the Beatles. I mean, they just, there's a certain timeless quality to many of their songs. And so there's enough public interest that this is a huge development. And so it's like getting in a time machine and you get to sit in on watching 
uh, the Beatles, John, Paul, George, and Ringo, sitting around fighting, fussing, feuding, and creating music. How they put the songs together for the album Let It Be and some of the songs that would later go on Abbey Road. Abbey Road was released earlier, but it actually was their last album. And there's a lot of tension because Paul is the sort of perfectionist. He is the guy who drives everything. He's the disciplinarian. Well, you got to show up at 10 for us to, to do this, and let's try it this way, and let's try it that way. And he tells George what kind of sound he wants to hear from his lead guitar, and he tells Ringo, well, make the drums go like this, ba 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 And you're doing this for hours and hours and hours. The Beatles rehearsed and rehearsed, and they tried to hone and make the songs better. And sometimes, if you're interested in the creative process, this is just mind-blowing. I mean, you're starting out with a couple of lines of lyrics, and a great song like uh, like Get Back or Let It Be. Get Back, by the way, never knew this, even though I've read a lot of the books on the Beatles, was originally a protest song against anti-immigrant sentiment, which was a very hot story in Britain at that time, 1969. And the original lyrics that McCartney sings, that you see this in the documentary, was about Pakistanis and Puerto Ricans, and obviously that got thrown out of the window in favor of uh, Sweet Loretta Martin and JoJo. And originally it was JoJo just leaving Arizona. They started to make it Tucson. I mean, you see the other Beatles when it's primarily a Paul song, and it goes the other way too, chipping in. Well, what if this line said this? Well, this didn't sound right, right, quite right. What if you hold this chord? If you're interested in how this gets done, first of all, it's an unbelievably hard work. And the Beatles, you know, the songs start out and they often sound crappy. Uh, they're not together, uh, they just didn't have... And so over time, the, the, they would fill out the lyrics. Um, the guitar players, Paul and George and John, would learn to play off each other. Uh, they, Billy Preston showed up one day. Billy Preston, who appears, uh, plays piano, uh, electric piano, a lot of Beatles. So he just showed up to say hi, and they said, you know, Billy, can you help us out on this album? He said, sure. And he, and he ends up, he's tremendous talent on the keyboard, ends up being part of a lot of these songs because they had only four people. Usually, you do what's called overdubbing. You do the takes, and then you overdub more harmonies, and then you come back and add a guitar riff, and you can come back and you can add you know anything, an orchestra, violin. But the Beatles decided to do Let It Be just as, as if they were doing it live, except it's in the studio. And it was going to be a television show, and that's why there's all this footage. Um, and so now... If, if John, in one song, is sitting down to play the piano or Paul is sitting down to play the piano, they have one less guitarist. But when Billy Preston arrives, that takes care of that particular problem. Now, things got really heated. Uh, George, at one point, as you'll see in this documentary, George Harrison is so fed up with Paul telling him what to do. And, you know, he was always, you know, he, ex he exploded in terms of his first solo album was a triple album. He had all these songs. And he could only get one or two. Uh, songs on each Beatles album because John and Paul dominated. And finally he says, that's it. See you around the clubs. I'm out of here. And they're left in the middle of this TV project, this album, and they don't even know if there's going to be a Beatles. So um, John and Paul and Ringo go to his house and they can't talk him into it. And then there's a second meeting. There was an ethically dubious scene here where uh, John and Paul wanted to talk privately. And they have their own tensions. You know, the oldest of friends and sometimes the best of enemies. And they go to the cafeteria, and the producers of this aborted TV show put a hidden microphone in a flower pot, in a, in a flipping flower pot, 
and record this really candid conversation with John is saying, look, you know, you're always telling me what to do. You're always telling George what to do. And Paul says, I know, but I just want to get the sound right. I got to stop doing this, but I know you're going to resent me, but somebody's got to do it. Uh, it just, you know, neither of them ever dreaming this will become public. A lot of the other stuff, they know there are cameras there. And even though they forget at times and they get into spats and all that. And by the way, Yoko Ono is in this a lot. Uh, Linda Eastman is in it. And you can see you know, Yoko's just always there. She's always sitting next to John. And the Beatles had never let anybody else into the studio. So there's that aspect of it as well. What you also see here is the tedium of making an album. This is probably true with any group that takes music seriously. But there's a lot of footage here. The whole thing is about six hours, and it's too much for some people. And a lot of people are just going to find it boring. If you don't love the Beatles, love rock, love music, or the creative process, you might want to have your finger on the fast-forward button. But for me, finding out you know who came in late and then what they were going to order for lunch, and they're sitting around, and they're all smoking cigarettes all the time. Maybe that helped their voices, I don't know. But you never see that on television or in the movies anymore, so it's really striking. Um, you see that they have these, these problems, like they've just set up a new studio at Apple, but a lot of stuff doesn't work, and there's distortion and feedback, and then there's an engineer trying to fix problems. And a lot of it, and this is true when you make movies as well, is just waiting around. You're waiting around for problems to be fixed. And then there's a lot of fooling around, like while they're waiting around, they are singing just different pop songs, stuff they made up. They sing a few songs that Paul and John wrote together when they were teenagers, like 15 and 14 years old. Uh, and then uh, some of the numbers they used to play when they did covers at Hamburg. They played a lot at this club in Hamburg, Germany, and then they later played at the Cavern in Liverpool. So they did that, and they're just, they're just having a great time. So these, this, this, it was a family. It was a dysfunctional family at times. These guys love each other. They love making music. They also can't stand each other at times. And what comes out of it, and as you see the songs evolve, is you see how it gets closer and closer and closer to what you remember to what you remember from the great Beatles album. So obviously, as a Beatles fanatic, I can't recommend it enough uh, for those of you who are so inclined. Well, that's about it for me. Once again, hope you had a great Thanksgiving weekend. We're back here tomorrow with more Buzzbeat. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.